Well, something that makes a great movie, a great book, a great TV show, uh, at least in my opinion, is a good villain. Whenever you have a hero type of character uh, in a TV show, in a movie or things, it's great to have a, a really good villain within that show as well. Uh, and one of my favorite types of villains are uh, characters that you really don't expect to be villains. They look like they're the good guy, and then all of a sudden you find this twist in the plot, and you find that they're actually uh, the bad guy. Now, in Luke's gospel, the hero, the main character, the, the focus of this book is definitely Jesus. But we also have a villain. Uh, we have someone who uh, actually isn't in a someone, it's a group. Uh, so we refer to them as the villains, plural. And, and these are villains that you definitely wouldn't expect to be villains. Uh, we're now in Luke chapter 5. We looked at a little bit of that last week. And these villains have now come onto the scene. And the reason you wouldn't expect them to be villains is because they're the religious leaders of Jesus' day. You would think these religious leaders would be the ones, the first ones to believe in Jesus, the first ones to tell people about Jesus, the first ones to follow Jesus, but instead, they're the first ones to reject him. They're the ones who want to destroy him. They're the ones who are telling other people to steer clear of him. And so we have these villains come on the scene here in chapter 5. And we first see them on the scene as we looked at last week. They're hearing all this stuff of Jesus and these healings and these things, and they finally decide, you know what, we have to for ourselves go check this guy out. And so they go up to the region of Galilee. Jesus is there in this house, and there's this crowd of people there, these four friends. They bring their paralyzed friends to Jesus, and they lower him down through the roof after they've ripped this hole in the roof. And as that friend is there, Jesus comes to him, Everyone's expecting them, Jesus to say, hey, you're healed. But instead, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. And right when that happens, the religious leaders who are there in that house, they think to themselves, who says this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're thinking, man, this man is blaspheming. He's claiming to be God. You see, they recognize something true. Yes, only God can forgive sins. The problem that they didn't see is that Jesus, there in front of them, was God. Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, he responds to them and he says, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, it's a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven you. The reason it's easier to say that is because you can't test whether what you said actually happened. I can say your sins are forgiven you. You don't know if it actually transpired. But you can test whether I have the power to say, take up your bed to a paralyzed man and walk. If I say that to you and you're paralyzed and you don't get up and you're not healed, then it's obvious I don't have the power to heal you. I don't have the power to make that statement come to pass. And so Jesus poses that. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or rise, take up your bed and walk. The religious leaders are pondering that question. They don't respond to that question. And so Jesus tells them this, but that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. He says to this man who's paralyzed, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. And this paralyzed man is healed at that moment. Immediately he stands up, takes up his bed. He's able to move and everyone is marveling at this. Now, Jesus does this to show these religious leaders who he was. He says, so that you may know the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. Only God can heal someone who's paralyzed. I'm going to heal this paralyzed man in your presence so that you may know who I truly am. Now, you would think at this moment, the religious leaders would say, oh, my goodness, you are God. Start worshiping him. Start believing in him. Start following him. But no, they didn't. They didn't accept 
that Jesus was God. They rejected that. And so Jesus leaves that home and he's walking down the road and he comes to one of the most hated people in the area, a tax collector named Matthew. Last week, we looked at all the reasons why the Jews and especially the religious leaders hated tax collectors. So we won't get into all those details now, but they were actually barred from the synagogue. They were people that they, were, they felt that they were such sinners that they didn't even uh, want them in their synagogues. And so the religious leaders wanted nothing to do with a man like Matthew, who was a tax collector. And Jesus comes up to this outcast of society and he comes to him and he says, follow me. Matthew responds by following Jesus and being his disciple, and then he gathers all his tax collector friends, and he has this party at his house, and in the midst of these sinful outcasts, we see Jesus there, and once again, these religious leaders are not happy. Not only does Jesus tell this man who's an outcast, who's a sinner, who they wouldn't even allow in their synagogues to be his disciple, he's hanging out with these guys, he's in a home with these guys, he's eating with them. How dare you, Jesus? That was their mindset, and they actually question him. They say to him, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus responds, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is letting them know it's guys like Matthew that I came for. I came to this earth to die for the sins of sinners, die for people like him. And that's why I am here. I came for people like this. The people that you're rejecting are the people that I want to reach. Well, that's where we left off last week, and this conflict now, as we look this morning, is going to grow, it's going to escalate. That was the start. These religious leaders had their opportunity to recognize who Jesus was, to accept Him for who He is. They reject that, and now we're going to see from here all the way to the end of Luke's Gospel, this escalation. And if you know the story, obviously, ultimately, they get it so that He is crucified, but we're going to kind of see this build up. But before we get into this next issue in verse 33 of chapter 5, I think it's important that we take a moment, step back, and kind of get a better grasp of the scribes and the Pharisees and what kind of made them tick. Because oftentimes you read this and you think, why in the world are they so anti-Jesus? Why in the world are they so against him when they're the religious leaders of the day? What is the problem that they have? And if you don't really understand what's going on with them and what they follow, you kind of come with this, I don't get it. But hopefully as I explain these things to you, you kind of get the idea of why there's such a conflict between Jesus and them. Let's just start with the thing that they were so focused on, which is the law. The scribes and Pharisees, when they said the word or the phrase, the law, they basically were referring to two different things. Um, The first expression in the law focused on the written law. So when they say the law, they could be referring to the Ten Commandments, the written law. They might have been referring to the first five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Or if they were to say the law and the prophets, they'd be referring to the whole Old Testament. For them, that was all the scriptures. Uh, And so when they use this term law, it could have been as simple as Ten Commandments or the first five books or the whole of the Old Testament. It was specifically focused on the written portion, but they also use that term, the law, to focus on the oral or the scribal law. And I want to kind of expound upon that a little bit because, you know, I think a lot of people today don't understand, you know, what they were focused on back in the time of Jesus, these religious leaders. In Jesus' time, it was this oral or this scribal law that was the real focus of the religious leaders of the Jews of his day. The Jews believed that the law was divine and that in it God had his last words and therefore everything must be contained in it. 
If a thing was not in the law explicitly, it must be in there implicitly. So they argue that out of the law, it must be possible to deduce rules and regulation for every possible situation and circumstance of life. And out of this thinking arose a group of men called the scribes. The scribes are one group of the religious leaders. The scribes made it their business of their lives to reduce the principles of the law to literally thousands upon thousands of rules and regulations. So they came to the Bible, the Old Testament. They looked at what was there, and they looked at that, and they said, okay, we're going to take this, and we're going to add a bunch of rules and regulations to it because this is what we think it means. And so that was kind of the role of the scribes. Let me give you a couple of examples to help you understand what they did. In Exodus chapter 20... Verses 8 through 10, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your sons, nor your daughters, nor your male servants, nor your female servants, nor your cattle, nor your strangers. Now the Sabbath is a great principle that God has established for people, uh, but... Unfortunately, the scribes, they came up and they said, okay, here's the Sabbath law. Now we're going to add a bunch of rules and regulations to this principle. Since part of the Sabbath principle is you shall do no work, then they had to define, well, well, what is work? Because we need to know what work is if we know whether or not we're doing it. So they came up with all kinds of things that they classified as work. I'm going to read some of the things that are in the scribal law, and it's very petty and it's somewhat even humorous that they would actually come up with this. But, for instance, to carry a burden on the Sabbath day, they said, this is work. But they had to define, well, what is a burden? Because we need to know what a burden is so we know it's work, so we know not to do it. And this is what the scribal law says is a burden. Lifting food equal in weight to a dry fig, enough wine for mixing in a goblet, milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put a wound upon a wound, oil enough to anoint a small member, water enough to moisten an eye, paper enough to write a customs house notice, and the list goes on and on and on. So they're saying, you know what, you can lift something that's the weight of a dry fig, but if you lift an apple, you broke the Sabbath. You know what, you can have a little bit of honey and put it on a wound, that's okay. But if you put a bunch of honey on a sandwich and eat it, you broke the Sabbath. That's, you did a burden. So they're getting super petty and they're coming up with all these things that they're kind of making up and saying, well, this is what we think a burden means. The scribes also believe that to write was to work on the Sabbath. Well, then they say, well, well, what is writing? We have to define what that is so we know whether or not we're breaking it. And this is what it says. He who writes two letters of the alphabet with his right hand or his left hand, whether of one kind or of two kinds, if they are written with different inks or in different languages, is guilty of breaking the Sabbath. So if you write two letters on the Sabbath day, you're good. You didn't break it. But if you write three or more, heaven forbid, you have now broken the Sabbath and you are, you know, this horrible person. And so, you know, According to these scribes, they come up with all these things and they constantly argued about, you know, all these different things about whether or not you could lift a lamp from one place to another on the Sabbath, whether a tailor committed sin if he had a needle in his robe because, whoa, he might go out and actually sew something, uh, whether a man might lift his child on the Sabbath. Uh, these things for them were the essence of religion. For them, this was what it was all about. This is, you know, you do this, this is what makes you godly. But these aren't things that God ever intended. So the scribes, these are the men who come up with these added rules and regulations. The Pharisees, 
The name Pharisee means the separated ones. They're the ones who said, you know what, we're going to be the guys who actually try to live out all of the rules and regulations that the scribes have come up with. And so this group of Pharisees, we're the separated ones. We're going to be separated from all the normal days of work life, and we're going to separate ourselves to living out all these petty rules and regulations that the scribes have established. And so you have these two groups, the religious leaders of the day, the scribes who are coming up with the rules and regulations, the Pharisees are the separated ones who are seeking to live them out. Now, for many generations, the scribal law, it wasn't written down, so they referred to it as the oral law, because one rabbi or scribe would speak it to another, he would memorize it, and then he would speak it to the next one, and he would memorize it, and it was passed on through memory in that way. In the middle of the 3rd century A.D., a summary of these oral laws were made. That summary is known as the Mishnah. If you've ever heard of that phrase in Judaism, that's what it is. It contains 63 various subjects of the law. In English, it makes a book of almost 800 pages. Uh, So this is quite a huge thing, the Mishnah, this oral law that was finally written down, 800 pages of all these added laws, rules, regulations that they came up with. But they didn't stop there. They said, you know what, the Mishnah is not quite good enough. So they said, we need commentaries. We need to explain all these rules and regulations. And so they came up with what is known as the Talmuds. Of the Jerusalem Talmud, there are 12 printed volumes. And of the Babylonian Talmud, there are 60 printed volumes. So there are 72 commentaries on the Mishnah, on this scribal law that they came up with. So to sum it up, the Jews start with the written law that we have, which is the Old Testament. But the scribes said, you know what, we need more than that. So they come up with their own additions. They add a bunch to those laws, the rules and regulations called the Mishnah. But then they say, you know what, that's not even enough. And so they write 72 commentaries on that called the Talmuds. Now to the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' time, religion and serving God was a matter of keeping all these rules and regulations that they came up with. They regarded these petty rules and regulations as literally matters of life and death and eternal destiny. This was very important to them. They thought this is what your relationship with God was completely based on. Now, it's important to note this is not what the law or what God ever intended the law to be. This is something that they added to the law. This was never what the Lord's plan was. This isn't what he wanted. They put burdens and regulations and rules onto the law that God never intended. And Jesus purposely broke many of these petty rules to show them this isn't God's plan. We're going to see some of that even in this chapter. Now, the Pharisees are a huge target of Jesus because they were the example that the Jews were looking to for someone who's supposed to be a religious person, someone who's supposed to be a godly person, someone who's supposed to be a religious person, a spiritual person. And so Jesus has them as a target because the Jews are looking and saying, that's what it is to be a godly person. But the problem is they weren't being godly people. They weren't living the way that God wanted them to. And Jesus was a huge target for the Pharisees because he's revealing to everyone, these guys are hypocrites. These guys are not godly. These guys are not doing what the Bible actually says you should. And so there's this conflict that's arising between these two groups because Jesus is God and actually living out the word of God the way it's supposed to. The scribes and Pharisees are claiming to be these godly people, but they're not living the way they should. And so Jesus is revealing their hypocrisy, revealing the fact that they're not godly, and they don't like it. And this conflict is arising, and it's starting right here in chapter 5 
of Luke. So hopefully that background gives you a little bit of understanding of why they have such issues with Jesus. It's because of all these added things that they do, and they think that's what makes you right with God. And Jesus reveals to them that is not the case at all. So the scribes, they just asked Jesus this question, why do you eat with those horrible, sinful tax collectors? And Jesus answers their question, and they go right into a new question in order to try to discredit and destroy him. And this is where we left off last week, verse 33, chapter 5 of Luke. It says this, Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? The disciples of John the Baptist and the the Pharisees, they fasted often, they prayed often, and, you know, these religious leaders want to know, hey, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast and pray like we do? Now, understand that the prayers and fasting that the scribes and Pharisees are referring to are the ones that they have established and said that you have to do. The scribes and Pharisees, they'd say, you know what, you have to fast twice a week on Monday and on Thursday, and you have to pray every day at noon, at three, and at six. This was something that they had established, and that makes you really spiritual and really religious. But you know, the scribes and Pharisees, they did this for a reason that wasn't really spiritual. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus shares about these men, these Pharisees, these scribes, these religious leaders, when it came to fasting and when it came to prayers. And I'll just let Jesus' words reveal what they were like. In Matthew 6, 5 and 6, Jesus says this, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. He's speaking about the scribes and Pharisees. That's the term that he uses for them. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. In the same sermon, Jesus refers to these same hypocrites when it comes to fasting. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward." But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. You see, for the scribes and Pharisees, prayer and fasting was more of an outward show to demonstrate, oh, look at how spiritual we are. And so they would go to the temple, they would go to the corners, they would go to where the people were, and they do these loud prayers so everyone could see, and oh, look at me. And when they fasted, they made sure that they looked like they haven't eaten in a while, and they were fasting, and so people would see, oh, wow, look at those godly men, they are fasting. And you know, they did it all as this outward appearance, and Jesus says, they're hypocrites. They've missed the point of fasting. They've missed the point of prayer. They're doing it for this outward show. And he says, you know what? They have their reward. The reward is the pat on the back from the people who see them. So they're saying, you know what? Why don't your disciples pray and fast like we do? Basically saying, why aren't you and your disciples spiritual and godly like we are? Well, notice Jesus' response to them in verse 34. And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Now, it's interesting right here, as we see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reveals that their fasting and their prayers were hypocritical. They weren't right. Jesus doesn't decide to go down that road right now. He could have just said, you know what? We don't fast and pray like you because you guys don't do it in the godly way that you're supposed to. Instead, he just gives an example of a wedding feast to help them understand there's a reason why right now 
my disciples aren't fasting. Back in the day of Jesus, a Jewish wedding would usually last about seven days, and the friend of the bridegroom would come for a time of festivities and joy. Uh, The wedding celebration uh, was definitely not a time to mourn. It was a time to rejoice. It was a time for them to have great joy. Now, by using this example of a wedding feast, Jesus is saying it's not appropriate for his disciples to mourn, to fast while he's there with them. He's saying, I'm here with them, so you know what, just like it's not good for the bridegroom and you know, it's for people to mourn and fast at a wedding, it's not proper for them while they're with me to mourn and fast. But he says, you know what, there's going to be a day when I'm taken away. He's referring to his death on the cross. And at that time, mourning is going to happen, and at that time, my disciples will fast. You know, I think it's interesting that several times in Scripture, the Christian life is described or given this example of a wedding feast where there's this great joy. And I get so saddened when I look at a lot of churches or a lot of Christians, and you don't see any joy at all. It's just this somber, you know, it's like, man, do you guys ever have any joy? Do you ever have any enjoyment? It just seems like, man, if I'm a non-Christian looking at that, I'm thinking, that's the last thing I ever want is Christianity, if that's what Christianity is all about. A great psalm, Psalm 1611, says, In your presence is fullness of joy. When we have a relationship with God, there should be a fullness of joy that's in our life. And if it's not there, there's a problem. But you know what? I think one of the problems is this reality that when we try to add rules and regulations and work our way to God like the religious leaders were doing, it robs you of joy. Because you're trying to relate to God based on your works instead of doing what the Bible says, relating to God based on the works of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And there's a huge difference because if I'm trying to relate to God based on what I do, then it's like, well, if I've done good today, if I've done enough work today, maybe God will accept me, maybe God will love me, uh, but I'm not sure. And that's a very somber relationship, one that doesn't bring much joy. But when I have confidence that, you know what, my relationship with God isn't based on what I do for Him, it's based on my faith in Jesus and what He's done for me. And because of that reality, I can have Plenty of joy because I know even when I fail, even when I sin, that sin's been dealt with on the cross. Jesus has forgiven me and I can still have that wonderful, privileged relationship with God. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they tried to be accepted by God based on their works for him. And they added all sorts of rules and regulations and said, oh, if we do all of this, then God will accept us. And they were joyless in the process. And sadly, they pushed that works-oriented mindset onto others, and it robbed those people of the joy that they could have had in their relationship with God. When our relationship with God is all about works, then like the Pharisees' relationship, it just becomes a chore and a burden. But that's not the way God wants us to relate to Him. He wants us to know that we're accepted and we're forgiven because of our belief in what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross as He died for our sin that we are now His children, and that we can come to Him at any time, not just when we've done some work for Him, not when we feel like we're doing good, that we have that free access because we are now His children in Christ. So these scribes and Pharisees, they hate the fact that Jesus' disciples eat with tax collectors and sinners. They hate the fact that Jesus' disciples and Him don't follow these petty rules and regulations, and they challenge Him with these questions. And Jesus responds to their questions, and now He's going to share two parables. And the ultimate purpose of these parables is to help these Pharisees understand something important about why he came to begin with. Notice what the first parable says in verse 36. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, 
No one puts a piece of from a new garment on an old one, otherwise the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new one does not match the old. Now, if you had an old garment and got a hole in it, you wouldn't go and find a piece of new cloth and sew it into that old garment. Just like today, if you have something new and you throw it in the dryer, what happens? It shrinks. So if you got a new piece of cloth and put it on an old garment and sewed it in there, that new piece would shrink and it would just tear and make the hole even bigger. And also that new piece wouldn't look right because it would be nice and new and the other piece would be old and faded and so it wouldn't match up. And so he's saying, you know, when you have this hole and it's, you know, you don't take something new and and try to fill that gap. With this first parable Jesus is illustrating, he didn't come to try to patch up the old religious system that the scribes and Pharisees were following, this old work-your-way-to-God-through-the-law system. Jesus didn't come to patch up the old system under the law. He came to bring a new system under His grace. Notice what the second parable says is both kind of intertwining together. Verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst and the wineskins will be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. Now, wine at that time was often stored in animal skins. And so when you put wine in anything, it starts to ferment and there's gases and it expands. Uh, and so if you had this older wine skin after time, it gets hard. And so if you were to put new wine into that, it doesn't really have any more room to expand. And so that new wine comes in and it, it ferments, it expands, and boom, that old wine skin would burst. And so he says, you know what, if you have new wine, the only place that you can put it is in a new container, a new wineskin container, because that's the only container that can handle the new wine. Now, in using this illustration, Jesus is bringing up the truth that his new way that he's bringing, this new covenant of grace, is not going to be able to be contained in the old covenant of the law. Jesus came to usher in a new system not to unite with the old one. He came to bring the new covenant where we can relate to God, not through keeping the law, but through accepting that Jesus kept the law on our behalf and paid for our sin on the cross. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees kept adding to the law different rules and regulations, thinking that was what's going to make them more spiritual. That's what's what's going to make them accepted by God. But Jesus didn't come to add the law. He came to fulfill it. Because the reality is, none of us can do the law. None of us could live out the law. So Jesus says, I'm the one who's going to come be the only man that actually fulfills and keeps the perfect standard of God because you can't do it. And I'm going to do it on your behalf and then I'm going to pay the price for the sin that you could never accomplish the law. You could never keep the standard that God has established for you. You see, the Old Testament law and the Jewish guys and the religious leaders, they were trying to ultimately gain God's approval and salvation through the works that they do, but they could never attain that because they could never live up to the standard. Jesus was the only one who met the standard, and therefore he enables us through our belief in what he's done for us to have a relationship with God. And so Jesus is bringing up this reality. I'm bringing something new. I'm bringing a new covenant under my grace that you can have a relationship with God based on the works that I do for you instead of trying to have a relationship with God based on the works that you do for him. Two very different things. Jesus came to establish the new covenant of grace. Ephesians chapter 2, those who've been coming on Thursday night, we looked at this in detail. It's a wonderful verse. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. 
Jesus established the new covenant of grace where we are not saved by our works. We're not saved by something that we try to do for God. Instead, we're saved by our faith in the work that Jesus has done for us. It's grace through faith, not ourselves and our works. And that's so important to understand because so many people, it's, it's all about me and my works that's going to get me to God, that's going to get me to heaven, that's going to save me. And it's very clear in Scripture, no, the only thing that enables us to be saved, the only thing that enables us to be forgiven of our sin is when we place our belief in what Jesus has done on our behalf, that Jesus met the standard for us and we believe in that and we believe that He paid the price for our sin and the consequences of our sin on the cross for us. We don't deserve it. There's nothing we can do to earn it, and that's why it's grace. Grace is undeserved favor from God. Jesus has given us what we don't deserve, what we can't earn. He's given us this wonderful free gift of salvation, and all we need to do is place our faith in what he's done. It's not us working and attaining and trying to earn God's privileged relationship, but it's accepting the fact that it's a free gift given to us if we'll just accept what Jesus has done. Jesus made really clear Hey, I came for sinners like Matthew. I'm Matthew as well, so he came for me, he came for you. That's what he came for. He wants to have us recognize it's not a matter of we work our way to God. It's a matter of he is the one who's worked his way to us to save us. And that we just need to believe in the work that he's done. The Pharisees, they weren't open to anything new. They weren't open to what Jesus was bringing. And notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 39. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. Ultimately, this is Jesus revealing to the Pharisees, this is where you guys are at. You're not willing to accept the new that I'm bringing. You're the guys who just want to hold on to the old. You want to hold on to the law. You want to hold on to this works mentality of trying to earn your salvation by what you do. And you're not willing to accept what I'm bringing, and that's why you're rejecting me. Sadly, there are a lot of people today trying to work their way to God. But there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. You know, the thing that really separates Christianity from every other religion, if you look at any religion, I don't care what it is, ultimately you can boil it down to man trying to work his way to the deity that that religion worships. I have to do this, this, and this in order for that deity to accept me. Christianity is different. God recognized no man could ever meet my standard. And so instead of asking him to try, I have come down and met the standard myself. I came down and made, lived the life that is perfect, lived out the law, gave my life for mankind. God came to us, and that's the big difference between Christianity, where instead of man works his way to God, God worked his way to man and made it possible if we believe in what he's done that we can have a relationship with him. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus made it very clear. I'm the only way. You want to get to God? You want to be saved of your sins? You want to get to heaven? There's only one way. That's through me. If you try another path, you try to do it by your own works, you try from some other way, it's not going to happen. There's only one way. You have to accept what I have done if you want to get to heaven. You want to get forgiveness of your sins. Well, these scribes and Pharisees, they didn't want to accept Jesus. They didn't want to accept what he was going to do for them. And they reject the fact that Jesus is God. And they hate the fact that Jesus and his disciples hang out with sinful people. They hate that Jesus and his disciples don't follow their petty rules and regulations. They challenge him. Why do you do these things? Jesus responds to those challenges, gives some parables to help them understand why he came. He didn't come to add to the law. He came to establish a whole new way in which we could be saved. 
Well, now we're going to have another encounter that the religious leaders have with Jesus. Notice what Luke 6, verse 1 and 2 says. Now it happened on the second Sabbath, after the first, that he went through the grain fields, and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them with their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why do you, are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So Luke tells us that on the Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through the grain fields. And as they're walking through, some of the disciples, they, they grab some grain, they rub it in their hands, and they get the food that's in it, and, and they eat the wheat. Now, the Pharisees, they see this. And they challenge them saying, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Once again, it comes back to the Sabbath law. Remember, the scribes and Pharisees, they added a bunch of rules and regulations to God's command. But the one that they added the most to was the Sabbath law that God had established. And you know what? God never intended them to do this. The commandment that they added to, God didn't think that that was the purpose. God wanted people to have a day of rest a day set aside for worship, for relaxation. So he established this commandment that every Sabbath day you're going to cease from working. You're going to have six days you can work, and you're going to have this one day where I want you to stop working, I want you to relax, I want you to focus on worshiping on me. It was a commandment to bless people with a day of rest, not curse them with a bunch of petty rules and regulations. But the Jews of Jesus' time, they didn't get that. The Sabbath day was like the worst day of all because they had to be so careful. There's all these rules and regulations that I have to hold to and keep. It wasn't a day of rest. It was a day trying to make sure that they didn't break any of these thousands of rules and regulations that the scribes had added to the scriptures. Exodus 34:21. God did give a Sabbath command about harvest time. It says, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest time you shall rest. Now, back in Jesus' time, most people were farmers, and when you want to get in your crop, you want to get it all done. And that was a temptation to say, you know what, we're just going to work around the clock for as long as it takes to get all this harvest in. And so that was a time when a lot of people say, forget stopping. We've done six days of work, but we're going to do another six, and we're not going to take a Sabbath. And so God said, even in that time, I want you to take a day and rest. Now, because of this law that's in there, once again, the scribes had added things that God never intended. They say, you know what? If you were to rub grain together in your fingers, that was just like threshing the grain. And if you were to blow the chaff of the grain off your hand, that was like winnowing the grain. Now, threshing and winnowing were the two main things you did during harvest time. And so they say, oh, see, if you do that, then you're breaking the Sabbath. So when the disciples were told that they pluck the heads of grain, they rub them together, they, they blow off the chaff, they eat that, according to the scribes and Pharisees, oh, you disciples, you're breaking the Sabbath, how dare you, look what you're doing, because they added these petty rules and regulations. They're saying, you know what, you're in violation of four of the Sabbath laws. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And also notice the Pharisees have this watchful eye. Here's Jesus and the disciples are strolling through this grain field. The disciples grab a little wheat, eat it. Boom, there are the Pharisees on the scene. Hey, we caught you guys. Look what you're doing. It's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. I mean, they're just watching for an opportunity to try to catch Jesus and the disciples doing something where they can pounce on them and try to accuse them of breaking the law. And this is something we're going to see through the rest of Jesus' ministry. They're just watching and waiting and saying, okay, when is he going to do something? When is he going to slip up? And then we're going to go and we're going to destroy him. 
Well, once again, Jesus and disciples are not following the petty rules and regulations of the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees aren't happy, and they say, well, why are you not doing what's lawful? Well, notice Jesus' response, verses 3 through 5. But Jesus answering them said, Have you not read this, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also some gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat? And he said to them, The Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Once again, Jesus could have argued with them. He could say, you guys don't have a clue what the Sabbath is all about, what the purpose is, and he could have explained it to them. But instead, he shares something in the Old Testament to show them, you know what, you've missed the point of the Sabbath completely. And he shares about David. Now, if you remember in uh, the life of David, there's a point in time where he's running from King Saul, and he is men, they're in the, the desert, they haven't eaten for a while. They come to Ahimelech the priest, and David asks Ahimelech if he had any bread to give David and his men because they hadn't eaten for weeks. And he says, you know what, all I have are 12 loaves of showbread, which are only meant to be eaten by the priests. But the priest says, here, you can have this because you guys are hungry, you haven't eaten for a while, take it, you know. God bless you. Jesus shares this story about David to help the Pharisees see an important point, that human need is more important to God than religious ritual. In Mark's account of the same event, Jesus tells him something else that I think clarifies what he's trying to bring out. Mark two twenty-seven, Jesus says to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. You see, the purpose of the Sabbath was to bless people. I want to give you a day off, God's saying. I want to make sure that you do that. I want to make sure that you don't just kill yourself working too many days in a row. I want you to have a day of rest and a day to focus on me. This is a time to bless you. Unfortunately, the Pharisees missed this principle altogether. For them, man was created for the Sabbath, to be burdened with all the rules and regulations that they added to the Sabbath. And so Jesus, in sharing about David, is showing the Pharisees, you know what, you've completely missed the point, completely missed why God established the Sabbath to begin with. And notice Jesus asked the Pharisees a question, have you not read what David did? And then he goes and explains the story. But you know what? If you know anything about the Pharisees, they were sticklers for detail. They could actually tell you uh, how many letters were in the Old Testament, how many times each letter was used. Their goal was to memorize huge portions of Scripture. So when Jesus says, have you not read? Of course they read what David did. They've been very familiar with that. When Jesus says, have you not read? He's more saying, I know you've read it, but you've totally missed the point of what you've read. Haven't you read and understood what's being said here, but they didn't get it. That was their problem. You see, the Pharisee had added so many rules and regulations to God's commands, especially the Sabbath, that they missed the clear meaning of what God was intending for them to understand with those commandments. They missed what the Sabbath was all about. They missed the meaning that God's word said, hey, this is a day to be a blessing to man, not a curse to man. But Because they added to God's word, they missed so much. And I think this should be a warning to us as believers because we got to be very careful not to add to the word of God. And when we do, we often miss the point of what the word of God is trying to communicate to us. Not to add commandments and rules and regulations that God didn't 
give, not to add burdens that God didn't give. I remember growing up in the church, my dad's a pastor, and I would ask certain things, why are we required to do this? Why do we do that? What's the biblical verse for that? Well, we don't really have one. It's just tradition, or it's just something that we've always done. Well, why are we doing this? Because it's a burden, and no one wants to, and we don't have any biblical premise for it, so why do we continue with it? And it's just like, well, that's what we've always done, and we're going to continue to do it, and it's just very pharisaical, and you miss the heart of the Word of God when you start adding things and rules and regulations because you want to throw in different things that God never intended. You know, unfortunately, there's a lot of legalism in the church today that does this. Legalism adds rules and regulations that God never intended, and then they judge everyone who doesn't do it. How dare you? Hey, we, we said you've got to do this, this, and this, and you're not doing it, you horrible sinner. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were like. Not only were they trying to do it, but they're pointing the finger at everyone else who's not doing it. And the reality is they weren't able to do it either. Your life becomes so consumed with doing these things that God never wanted you to do to begin with. Notice Jesus finishes by saying to the Pharisees that the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. There's only one Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees knew who that was. God. This is the second time that Jesus has made very clear who he is. When he says to the man who is paralyzed, your sins are forgiven you, right after, so that you'll know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Only God can do that. Boom, Jesus is making clear, I'm God. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. There's only one Lord of the Sabbath, God. Twice now, Jesus has made very clear to you religious leaders, here, who I am, I am God. Understand it. I want you to realize it. But now, once again, they rejected that, and that's why these things start to escalate because they won't accept Jesus for who he is. Well, now they're going to have another encounter, the final one we're going to look at, verse 6. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. Once again, what day is it? It's the Sabbath day. And they're coming to Jesus as Jesus is there in the synagogue. He's teaching. But they're not coming to listen to Jesus teach. They're waiting because they know there's a man who comes to this synagogue. He has a withered hand. And we know that Jesus loves to heal people. But will he heal this man on the Sabbath? Because once again, they added rules to the Sabbath that God never intended. And one of those rules was if someone was in need of medical attention on the Sabbath, you could only work on them if their life was in danger. And even then, you could only sustain, work on them just enough to make them survive to the next day when the Sabbath was no longer happening. And then you could actually do the medical care that they needed. So this was another thing that they added. And so, hey, if Jesus heals this man, he has a withered hand. Guess what? His life's not in danger. He's fine. He'll make it. No problem. Jesus better not heal him because if he does, according to them, He was breaking the Sabbath. And so they come to the synagogue and they're ready. They're ready to pounce on Jesus. They're ready to say, oh, he's going to heal this guy. And we're going to be there to tell everybody, this horrible sinner, how dare he heal someone on the Sabbath. Well, look at what happens. Verse 8. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy? And when they had looked around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Once again, Jesus knows the thoughts going on in the Pharisees' hearts, in their minds. He knew they're waiting to accuse him. And so he says to this guy who has a withered hand, You know what? Come up here. Stand here with me. And before he heals him, he poses 
a question to the scribes and Pharisees, a great question. He says, you know, I'm going to ask you guys something. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? Notice they don't respond to this question. See, Jesus always knows the right question to ask because he sees the heart of people. With this question, Jesus is getting to the heart of the Pharisees' issue. The Pharisees weren't going to answer, well, it's lawful to do evil and destroy on the Sabbath, but ultimately, that's exactly what they're guilty of. In this question, Jesus emphasized the truth about the Sabbath. There is never a wrong day to do something truly good for someone, to help them to do something to save their life. But the Pharisees missed that about the Sabbath. They were more concerned about keeping their rules and regulations than they were about this man who was in need being healed of this infirmity that he had. They'd rather this man be withered hand for the rest of his life than to be healed on the Sabbath. Well, after asking this great question, Jesus looks around the room. They don't answer him. And so in front of them all, he comes to this man. And he says, stretch out your hand. And right there, this man's hand is restored as whole as the other. And I want you to note something important here because notice how Jesus chooses to heal the man with the withered hand. You know, withered hand meant your hand was deformed. It couldn't function. You couldn't stretch it out. You couldn't move it. And so Jesus says to this man something that would be impossible for him to do. Stretch out your hand. Notice this man doesn't respond, "Uh, what are you talking about, Jesus? There's a reason my hand's kind of just dangling here. I don't do anything with it. It's withered. I I can't stretch it out. I mean, I I thought you knew and understood that. I I can't do it. Notice that man doesn't respond with excuses when Jesus ultimately presents him with an impossible command. I'm asking you to stretch out your hand. I know you can't do it, but I'm telling you to do it and just believe in me. And notice this man just in obedience when his head thinking, I can't stretch out my hand. How am I going to do that? He just in obedience believes the impossible command of Jesus. And in that, Jesus heals him. Something important for us to understand is that God will never command us to do something He won't enable us to accomplish. Let me say that again. God will never command us to do something He won't enable us to accomplish. When God commands us to do something, He's going to, through His Spirit, enable us to accomplish whatever He gives us to do. And He wants us to respond like this man with the withered hand. To choose to obey what He commands, even though it might seem impossible to you. What God doesn't want is us to argue with Him, to give excuses. Oh, Lord, if you only knew. You know, God gives some impossible commands. Husbands, love your wives all the time. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Love your enemies. And oftentimes we sit back and say, God, if you only knew who I was married to, you would know that is an impossible command. I can't do it. If you only knew who my parents were, you would know that's an impossible command. I can't do it. If you only knew these enemies that I have, you would know there's no way I could love them. So often we make excuses, and God's saying, forget giving me your excuses. I commanded you, but also understand I will enable you to do what is impossible for you, but it's not impossible when I empower you to do it. And that's something that we have to understand, because, yeah, it's true. I can't love my wife like Christ loved the church unless he empowers me to do it. I can't love my enemy the way I'm supposed to, unless he empowers me to do it. I could make excuses. That's impossible. Yes, it is impossible for me, but it's not impossible when God empowers me to do it, which is what he does. Whenever he commands us to do something, he will always empower us to accomplish what he commands us. So Jesus heals this man. Notice the response of the scribes and Pharisees, because it just totally reveals their hearts and why they're the villains of this. 
Their hearts are filled with rage. This man with the withered hand is now whole, and they're filled with rage that that actually happened on the Sabbath day. They're filled with rage and want to destroy Jesus. How dare you heal this man? It just shows their heart. It shows where they were at, that they were more concerned with these petty rules and regulations than they were about the need of this individual who was a Jewish man in their synagogue coming with a withered hand each and every week, and they could care less about him. All they cared about was that something wasn't done on the Sabbath day. And it just totally reveals the heart of these guys that they're complete hypocrites. They totally missed what being godly men were, and that's what Jesus will continue to reveal about them. And we'll close with these verses. Jesus constantly is rebuking the scribes and Pharisees for this kind of heart. Notice what he says in Mark 7, 8, 9, and 13. For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the traditions of men, the washing of pitcher and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the command of God that you may keep your tradition making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Here Jesus reveals one of the biggest problems the scribes and Pharisees have. They constantly reject the commands of God so they could keep their traditions, their add-ons, the things that they put into the scribal law, the Mishnah, all these different things. Their tradition, the rules and regulations that they came up with were more important to them than following the true commands of God. Of God, And that's why they can be filled with rage when a man is healed from a withered hand. They didn't care about his needs. They only cared about the rules and regulations. You know, this legalistic behavior is so destructive, and sadly, too many Christians get sucked into it, and we become pharisaical. We become these judgmental people who have lost joy, who have missed the point of what our relationship with God should be all about. And all we want to do is debate rules. But the point isn't what we should or shouldn't be following. The ultimate point is, how do we approach God? Do we approach God based on my works and what I do? Is that what saves me? Is that how I get to Him? Or do I approach God based on the works of Jesus Christ on my behalf, what He did for me, how He saved me? Those are the two paths. I'm either going to try to do it on my own or I'm going to accept what Jesus has done for me. And that's the real issue that you need to debate with legalists, not every petty rule and regulation. How do we relate to God? The Bible is very clear. It's the path of Jesus. It's the only way that you're going to get forgiveness, the only way that you're truly going to have a relationship with God. The one that we try to do on our own through our own works will never lead where we think it's going to. So Jesus has now had several encounters with the scribes and Pharisees. They've asked him four different questions to try to discredit him, to try to destroy him. He responds to those questions. He heals in front of them. He demonstrates who he is, but still they don't believe in him. They don't accept him. It just causes them to get to a point where now they want to destroy him. And these villains in this story have shown their true character, their true heart. And it's just going to get worse and worse to the day when they shout out to the crowd, crucify him, crucify him. They want to see Jesus killed. We're going to shift gears here for a second. I know it's Mother's Day. I'm going to close in prayer. Uh, our kids, if someone actually can go and tell, Gray was going to do that, but he's back there, uh, and just tell them we're uh, ready for them. They're going to come, and uh, we're going to do something a little special for the moms as we close. So let's just pray, and then we'll, we'll get into that. Father, I just ask that you would help us, Lord, not to be like the Pharisees, not to think that we are going to be right with you based on all the works that we do, but to understand we have this wonderful privilege of accepting your work on our behalf accepting what you have done, the fact that you lived a perfect life even though we couldn't, that you died for our sin, that sin that we should have to pay the punishment for. You took it on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to. 
And that if we just place our faith in you and believe in you, we can have a relationship with you, Lord. And I just pray that not only would we accept that personally, but that we would be those that would reveal that to others. Not to point fingers and judge and say, look what you're not doing, but to say, hey, what you need is a relationship with Jesus, to recognize Jesus lived that perfect life on your behalf so that you could have that relationship, Lord. And so as we see these groups, Lord, these religious leaders who've rejected Jesus and, and are setting a horrible example of what it is to be godly men, I pray that we wouldn't be guilty of going down that path. I pray that they would be an example to us of what not to do and that you would help us be truly godly and follow what your word says. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.